Good morning and greetings to each of you this morning in Jesus' name. Brother John's devotional this morning caught my attention. For what purpose do we do the things that we do? And I ask you the question this morning, for what purpose are you here this morning? We just sang about Jesus and what He is to us. What is Jesus to you? If you want to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, you know that that's where we were then. We looked at the first part of Hebrews chapter 11. This message is a continuation of that. And what I, what I talked about in the last message was the idea that faith that does not, is not accompanied by obedience is not a life-producing faith. And I want to pick up where I left off in verse 7 of chapter 11. We're talking about Noah. We use Noah as an illustration of faith that leads us to obedience or faith that produces obedience. And there's a phrase there that I got the title of the message this morning. And it's what it says here in, in verse 11. I mean, sorry, in verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Now, where I got the message, get the message titled this morning, is from the uh, part where it says, or the phrase where it says, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. The title of the message this morning is Saving Faith. So... What is saving faith? You see, that was the foundation of James's argument. We looked at the book of James just a little bit. And he asked this question in chapter 2 as the foundation of his argument about faith and works, and faith without works is dead. He says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he have faith and have not works? Can faith save him? He's posing a question. But to begin with, he poses a question says, what doth it profit? You see, there's, there's no profit where there is no response or no outworking of faith. Can that faith save him? Have you ever been in a discussion where there was a debate about faith and works? I have. Should we debate that? I think if we're on either side of that argument, we need to carefully look at what the Scripture says. You see, if we're, if we're arguing about one over another, I think we need to look at what the Scripture says. You see, the New Testament talks about dead faith. It also talks about dead works. It talks about living faith. And it talks about being judged by our works. We look here at Hebrews chapter 11. We think about Hebrews chapter 11. What, what do you think about when you think about Hebrews chapter 11? What do you call that chapter? You call it the faith chapter. But you read down through it and what do you read? You read about faith. But you read about something else too. Works. 
You read about works. You see, this, is a, this chapter is about faith that works. Just as it is with Noah, or was with Noah, so it is with us. It will be faith that works that is saving faith. Not just an intellectual um, assent, but a belief that changes the way we live. So here in this chapter, there's examples of men and women whose faith produced work. Heroes of faith, we call them. And I'd like to look at several of those this morning and consider how we can also be men and women who have saving faith. But I'd like to preface that with one of my favorite verses from the book of Acts. You can turn there if you want to, but I'm going to read it to you out of the New American Standard. So I think it's a lot clearer out of that translation. It's Acts chapter 13, verse 36. And it was reading in the New American Standard, this verse really jumped at me and really made me stop and think. And I went to the King James, I was like, yeah, it says the same thing. I just didn't see it before. But here's what it says. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. Now, if you're following along in the King James, it says the same thing. It's just a little bit worded significantly different. But I want us to think about that. What did David do? For David, after he had served the purpose of God, David had a specific purpose to fulfill with his life. When was he to fulfill that? In his generation. And I'd like for us to consider this morning that in our generation, each one of us has a purpose of God to fulfill. In our generation. God's not asking us to fulfill something in David's time. He's asking us to fulfill something today in our generation to walk with Him by faith. I'd like for us to think about a story. Now, this isn't a true story, but it has a connection with a true story. So there was a man that was doing a construction project on his farm. And he was very busy with that construction project because he was trying to meet a time, a production deadline. He needed to be done with this project in a certain amount of time so that he could go into production. And because of the importance of the project, he neglected some other things around his farm. And one of the things that he neglected were the thistles growing in his pasture. So he he's just thought, well, he, you know, he could just leave that and he could get that next summer. Well, he started to realize he went through this project that he needed more help than what he had. And so he hired a local man to help him. Well, it just so happened this man that he hired hated thistles. And as he came to work the first day, he was driving up to the farmer's place and he looked out across the pasture and he saw all these thistles. And he parked his truck beside the road and he said, this really needs to be taken care of. And he got out of his vehicle and he grabbed a thistle hoe out of the back of his truck and he went up through the field and he spent the whole day hoeing thistles. 
So I have a question for you. Did the hired man serve the farmer's purpose? See, David served the purpose of God in his generation. Did the hired man serve the farmer's purpose? And the answer is no. Because the farmer didn't hire him to dig thistles. He hired him to help on the construction project. That's what had the priority. That's what the farmer had was, was hiring him to do. That's what the farmer wanted from him. What does God want from us? What's God's message to us? What's God's call to us? Unless we know what that call is, unless we embrace that call, we will not be able to fulfill the purpose of God in our generation. So we need to know the Word. We need to know God's Word to us. I'd like to look first at Abel. Abel's faithful worship. That's in verse 4 of chapter 11. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he, being dead, yet speaketh. So let's turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 4. This story plays out in just a few verses. I'm going to read verses, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. In the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the first things of of his flock, and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Go ahead and read verse 8. Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass that when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. So we have a story here of two brothers who had two occupations. They brought two offerings. One offering was accepted and one offering was not accepted. And here in in Hebrews 11, verse 4, it says that Abel's offering, Abel's sacrifice was more excellent. What made the difference? I think there's a key in verse 7 here of our reading from Genesis. If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. You see, there was an understood principle that God was presenting that was behind this. God was saying, you know what's right. If you do right, you will be accepted. But if you do not do right, sin lieth at the door. You see, worship is not about who we are. It's about who God is. It's not that God needs to come to our standard. We need to come to God's standard. God has a standard. If we're going to worship Him properly, 
We're going to worship him according to his standard. I believe the foundation of that is recognizing who God is. Who is God? He's the Almighty. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The creator of the universe. And it says in Psalm 29.2, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. If this is the kind of God we serve, the kind of God who is over everything, ruler over everything, He's the Almighty One. How are we going to present ourselves to Him? You see, it says that God had respect to Abel's offering. And I believe that the reason why He had respect to Abel's offering was because Abel had respect to Him. Abel had respect for what he knew was right. And he performed what he knew was right in his sacrifice. So do we have reverence for God? How can we, in a practical way here at Mabel Chapel, show respect in our worship to God and be pleasing to Him like Abel was? That brings me back to my question, for what purpose have we come? Does it matter how we come to church? Are we coming together? We are coming together for an express purpose, to worship Jesus, to worship the Lord. So our gathering here is not primarily about our interaction with one another. It's about worship. Interaction with each other is secondary. Primarily, it's about meeting with the God of the universe. Do we think about that? I was just challenged as I considered this. Do I think about on Sunday morning before I come to church that I'm going to meet with God? I'm going to meet with the ruler of everything. The one who holds the future. You see... How I think about that meeting is going to be reflected in how I relate to my work to the worship service, to my time of worship. Our conduct, our appearance will reflect what we think about that meeting with God. There's been a movement in the Christian church towards a casual approach to worship. Is that important? Does that matter? I believe it does. Along with that casual approach to worship has come a lowered view of God and His commands and a raised view of man. What does that mean? Well, it may not mean a whole lot initially, but long term, it has a reflection. It has a result. What's the result of that? Many churches, as a result of a a lowered view of God and His standards in their worship, and a raised view of man, have put aside 
the commands of God and lifted up the comfort of man. But why did we come to worship? In contrast to that, it says in Hebrews 12, verse 28, Wherefore we receive, sorry, wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Is that the view of God that we have? Do we have the kind of reverence for God that it's talking about here? And do we view our meeting with God here as collectively as brothers and sisters as the most important meeting that we have? Here are some ways we can show our reverence or casualness in our approach to worship. I want you to think about these and reflect on these. Our dress. We consciously or subconsciously choose what we wear based on how we want to present ourselves. And that's true for everything that we do. If we're we're involved in something, we're going to choose what we wear based on how we feel about that experience. And so when we come to church, we come to meet with God, we reflect our view of that based on how we present ourselves and the way we appear. How about our attention? What are we focused on? Are we focused on our connection with God? Or are we focused on our comfort and our pleasure as we worship? Are we focused on communicating with others? What are we focused on? How about our general activity? How we talk and move around and stuff during the service? Do we draw attention to ourselves? Or do we want to promote an atmosphere where meditation and focus on God is primary? See, all those things play into the kind of worship experience that you have before God. But it, it's, those things don't make worship. I want to be clear about that. But it's a reverence for God that we have for Him that inspires us and drives the way that we come before Him. We talked in Sunday school class about offerings and sacrifices that were being made, but God wasn't pleased with them because they weren't coming from the right inner person. And that inner person has to be there. But if that inner person is there, then something's going to come out of that. See, that's where that whole thing of faith and work is connected. And I thought about the verse in Hebrews 4 as we were in Sunday school class. It says that the gospel was preached to them as well as it was to us, but it didn't profit them. You know why? Because it wasn't mixed with faith in them that heard. There has to be that joining together of faith and work to be saving faith, for our worship to be acceptable to God. 
It's more than just knowing what's right, it's doing it. You see, God said to Cain, if thou doest well. I believe Cain had a knowledge of what God required, but he didn't choose to do it. And in that lay the difference between acceptable worship. So the knowledge was there, but the doing wasn't there. Don't be just hearers of the word, be doers of it. Psalm 24, verse 3. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul into vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. You see, our worship comes from the condition of our life, the condition of who we are. And if that's not joined to God in a faith relationship, the things that we do aren't going to produce right worship. But if there is a faith connection there, and I'm probably overemphasizing this, there is going to be something that happens. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Happy is the man that feareth alway, but he that hardeneth his heart shall fall into mischief. Saving faith comes to God on His terms. Now let's move on to Abraham. Chapter 11, verses 8 through 10. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go into a place which he should after receive for inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundation, whose builder and maker is God. So the story of Abraham, big part of the book of Genesis. Abraham left his home country, the call of God. He left the city of Ur, and he went out because God had asked him to leave and go to a land that he would show him of. So he left a city. He left a place of permanence, his permanent home. And he went looking for the place that God would show him of. He left behind physical permanence and he went looking for spiritual permanence. Here it says in verse 10, For he looked for a city which hath foundation, whose builder and maker is God. You see, the call on Abraham's life was more than just a call to prayer. It was a call to die. It was a call to die to his old life, to leave his old city, and to go he knew not where and follow God. The call of the gospel on your life and on my life is more than a call to prayer. It's a call to die. It's a call to leave our old life and follow God where He leads us. Then Jesus said to His disciples, If any man will come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for My sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul. Abraham went looking for 
the spiritual permanence. And we're leaving behind uh, a physical permanence, a physical life to reach out for the saving of our soul, a spiritual permanence, spiritual life. How can we make this practical? Does God want us to travel to Israel and live in tents for the rest of our lives? That was Abraham's generation. But God has a purpose for us in our generation. He's calling us into the gospel for a purpose. This call to die and to follow Him has a purpose. In Abraham's life, there were two cities. And in your and my life, there's two kingdoms. The spiritual kingdom must take priority over the kingdom of this world. We have to die to the kingdom of this world. So how important are spiritual things in your life compared to physical things? Make a list of the things in a mental list of the things in your life. How important are they? Where what what tips the balances on what you do every day? What you do with your time? You see, you have a generation in which to live out life. What do you do with that generation, that time? The things that will last for eternity versus the things that will last only for a period of time. The things that are physical and dying. What is driving your life? What will last for eternity? Your relationship with God. Your devotions. Your prayer. Your church life. What else will last for eternity? The souls of men. Loving people. Where are they in your priorities? What will only last for time? Your possessions, your plans, your position. Those things are fleeting. They're going to disappear. They're going to go away. Where are they at in your life? In Matthew 6, Jesus said, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. The people who are part of this world's kingdom, those are the things they're seeking after because that's where they see permanence. That's where they see security. But your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. God knows those needs. He'll take care of those things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Be like Abraham. Let go. And pursue God. Follow Him. Saving faith builds a spiritual kingdom, not a physical one. Let's move on to Moses. Chapter 11, verses 24 through 29. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasure in Egypt 
for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as, dry, as by dry land, which the Egyptians, assaying to do, were drowned. So in the first three verses of that reading, we see that Moses had three things. He had position, he had pleasure, and he had treasures. And each one of those things he rejected. And what did he reject them for? More treasure? More pleasure? He rejected them for suffering and reproach. And by the world standards, that was a really bad deal. How is it to our standards? How do we see Moses' trade-off? You see, Moses saw something that the people of this world do not see. He saw value in being part of the people of God. In verse 26, it says that he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. And that word there, or actually it's three words, the recompense of the reward is one word in the Greek, and it basically means an appropriate return. So Moses, in that trade-off, he saw an appropriate return for what he was trading off. And you'll notice in verses 28 and 29 what happened to the Egyptians who had the pleasure, the wealth. And some of them the position. In verse 28, the firstborn died. And in verse 29, they died in the Red Sea. So you see, Moses went through both of those things. So there was recompense. There was return. But not just that. So we don't live in ancient Egypt. But it doesn't seem like a lot has changed. Because we live in a culture where there's plenty of opportunity for position and for pleasure and for treasures. So what are we going to exchange those for? Or are we going to go after those things? There's a key word in verse 25. Choosing, rather. You see, Moses made a choice about where he was going and what he was going to do with those things. Moses endured, in verse 27, as seeing him who is invisible. He lived as if God were there. Now thinking about suffering and reproach, in 1 Peter 4, it says this, very powerful verses. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh... Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, 
For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the past, for the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. You see, the way of Christ is a way of suffering. Jesus called us to come into a life where we take up our cross daily and follow Him. You see, that taking up of the cross is an intentional choice. What are we choosing? What is our mindset? Is our minds, do we wake up in the morning with the realization that following Christ is a call to sacrificial living? To sacrifice ourselves? To live as Christ lived? And for what purpose? Not that we should live the rest of our lives to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. To fulfill the purpose of God in our generation. But we cannot fulfill the purpose of God in our generation without choosing to follow Him, without choosing to take those steps, without choosing to take up that cross. Choice. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. Are we careful about the little things in our lives? Are we careful about the standards that we set for ourselves in little things? in little pleasures, in little treasures. Because you see, it's those little things that set the tone for the next step, for bigger things. Are we being faithful? Are we being faithful in setting the standard for our families? What is our standard of entertainment? What is our standard? It's the little things that are going to make the big difference in the long run. Saving faith chooses God's way at any cost. In conclusion, I'd like to read verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath pre prepared for them a city. A different people going to a different place. Strangers and pilgrims. It is through being defeated by earthly power that Jesus conquered the spiritual forces of evil and set up His kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom where leaders are servants, neighbors, are enemy, neighbors and enemies are loved, poor widows give away half their money. Under the lordship of King Jesus, humility is exalted. The first shall be last, offenders are forgiven 70 times 7, and ethnic outsiders kneel down and help half-dead strangers lying in a ditch. The way of Jesus is countercultural. It is upside down and inside out. A kingdom where weakness is power, 
power is weakness, and suffering leads to glory. In our worship, in our life, in our choices, are we running counter to a world that is pleasing itself and we're focused on pleasing God and fulfilling His purpose for our generation with saving faith? May God bless you.